Hey, it's Mercedes. Welcome to another week on the West Block podcast. This week, we have got a packed show for you. We're going to be talking about the U.S. election. Who's likely to win and what does it all mean for Canada? What if there's unrest? We'll talk about that with former Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird. Then we sit down with Canada's top doc, Dr. Theresa Tam, about a potential third wave, I know no one wants to hear that, of COVID, and what she thinks of bar and restaurant closures along with gyms. We'll also talk to Dr. Tam about the one thing she would go back and do differently. Then it's Minister of Natural Resources Seamus O'Regan on the show. If Joe Biden wins the presidency this week in the United States, Keystone XL will be dead. What is the government's plan to try to support Alberta going forward? But first, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been pretty tight-lipped about the U.S. election and everything unfolding south of the border. So at his press conference on Friday, I tried to get something out of the Prime Minister on what he thinks of the campaign south of the border. I know you have to be careful about what you say about other countries' elections, but with so many eyes south of the border as we prepare for the election in the United States, you are a global leader. You are the prime minister of the country that has the most trade, the most military dependence on the United States. You've watched these two campaigns unfold, and you've never been shy about your values or your priorities. What has been your take on the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign in the United States? As you know, Mercedes, I'm not going to comment uh, the election ongoing in, uh, in the United States. I will say that as a government, our responsibility has been uh, to be prepared for all different possible eventual outcomes. Uh, that means looking carefully at proposals made by the different uh, candidates for, uh, for this presidency and uh, understanding how to position Canada in the best way to defend Canadians' interests, to defend uh, our, uh, our values, and we will continue to do that. Uh, we uh, will continue to seek to have the best possible relationship with the United States uh, going forward because it is so important to Canadians, and we will uh, look to things that we can do together. Regardless of what happens on, uh, uh, on Election Day next week, uh, we will uh, be ready to work with uh, the American administration in ways that will uh, support Canadians and support our values in the world. Joining me now to talk about the U.S. election and possible results is former Minister of Foreign Affairs, John Baird. Thank you for joining us this morning, Mr. Baird. What's your prediction for the U.S. election outcome? I think it's going to be very, very close. I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, Donald Trump really is in the hunt for this. Uh, no one predicted he'd win uh, four years ago. Uh, I certainly did. Um, I worked with Hillary Clinton. I thought she was great. Uh, but uh, this populism we see in the United States, there is a constituency for it. And uh, no one would have ever thought uh, one year ago that, uh, that uh, the race would be uh, this close. A lot of people are worried about potential violence, potential chaos after the election result. We've all seen the footage of what happened with the Biden campaign in Texas with a convoy of trucks surrounding it. They were ramming cars, very, very aggressive. Are you concerned about unrest or violence in the United States following the election? And is there any risk to Canada there? I don't think there's much risk to Canada, but there certainly will be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of chaos. But I think we've got to remember that uh, the institutions within the United States are pretty strong and uh, they'll get through it. Uh, on the left, you've got Antifa, which uh, could be pretty ugly. And then you've got these uh, crazy uh, far right groups that, uh, that uh, could cause problems. But at the end of the day, I think there'll be a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty, but uh, they'll get through it. 
A lot of people are wondering if Donald Trump will accept the election result if he loses. Uh, he's been giving indications, you know, the only way I could lose is if there's fraud. People are worried about what that's going to lead to. Do you see a scenario where if Trump loses, he refuses to walk away from the presidency or tries to sow some kind of discord? I think, that, I think he might be just, you know, protecting himself so that in the event that he did lose, he could just uh, blame cheating and uh, that uh, he actually did enjoy the support of the American people even when he didn't. Uh, having said that, the institutions of the United States are strong. And for any reason, he refused to recognize the results. Uh, Joe Biden will be sworn in uh, on uh, the Capitol uh, on, uh, in the third weekend of January. Uh, congressional Republicans, the Supreme Court, uh, they, uh, they're pretty strong institutions, and I wouldn't see any need for uh, real concern there. What's happening inside the Canadian government right now? Because they're, they're very, very careful about what they're saying. All the sources we're talking to are saying, you know, they do not want to create waves, do not draw fire, wait for an election result, and then give a very careful statement. But you've been inside government. You've seen what happens. So can you tell us a bit about what cabinet will be preparing for, what the prime minister's advice is he'd be receiving, how the Canadian government gets ready for, I mean, in this case, an unprecedented election? No, I think I think it's not as as unprecedented as you might think. Obviously, they've dealt with Biden when he was vice president, and they had a good relationship with uh, President Obama, and they've obviously managed to navigate uh, Trump for the last four years. I think the fact that uh, Canadian government officials have shut up and gone uh, gone silent has probably been in the best interests of uh, of the country and our economic relationship. So that's a good thing. Um, I think uh, you know they'll continue to have to deal with a challenging president if Trump uh, is uh, reelected. But if uh, Biden wins, you know that's going to be particularly challenging. I mean, one of the first things he's going to do when he enters the uh, Oval Office is cancel the Keystone XL. He's uh, the Democratic Party is not a party that uh, endorses free trade. They're very hostile uh, on protectionism, and that should be a real concern for Canada. And it's not just Joe Biden and the Buy America phenomena. Is the Democratic Party is uh, is uh, is much more protectionist than the Republicans. Trump is an exception to that, obviously. But um, you know, we'll, the key thing to watch will be: is there a, a Republican Senate or a Democratic Senate? That would might be one check on Biden and uh, and some of his worst instincts. Do you, do you think that there will be a Republican Senate? I think it's probably more likely than not that the Republicans will uh, maintain control of the Senate. Uh, they're facing probably three losses, but uh, potentially one or two gains. And uh, even on the three losses, uh, they're, uh, they're not underwater as much as they were even just a few uh, weeks ago. All right. Former Minister of Foreign Affairs, John Baird, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Hey, welcome back. We're going to bring the show back home to Canada now, where I sat down with Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam. We are so used to seeing her at press conferences, answering questions every day, but we don't really get a chance to get to know her or to talk to her one-on-one. -on -one. So I asked her some questions that were top of mind for me and a lot of other folks I've talked to about the pandemic. Everything from the early pandemic response to how she's actually managed to cope with the stress and the time constraints of the pandemic. How does someone who's on TV all the time and running the public health response manage to stay healthy themselves? What lessons has she learned? Going back, if she could do it all again, Again, what would she do differently and what can we learn for the next pandemic? We've got all that and more. Here's that interview. Dr. Tam, thank you so much for making time for us. It's my pleasure. What do you think of the pleas from the restaurants and fitness industries who are saying, 
Uh, we don't have the national numbers. It's different everywhere, and I know that you're national. But for example, in Ontario, 2% of the cases were coming from restaurants, 5% from gyms. Uh, and they're saying the, the entire industry is being crushed under the weight of these shutdowns. Do you think it's still good science to be shutting down gyms and restaurants? Uh, I think obviously maybe bars or clubs where people are dancing and yelling is another story. But a lot of these other places are saying, look, we're being so careful. So I think in the local level, it's a very difficult decision. They're trying to op keep schools open. They're trying to keep essential workplaces, schools, and, and, and uh, educational institutes open. So how do you cut down on that contact community-wise? Um, th there's some settings because they satisfy the three Cs, what we call the three Cs, close, uh, poorly ventilated, uh, crowded potentially, uh, and face-to-face -face contacts where you ha sometimes have to take your mask off when you're eating or when you're maybe exercising uh, strenuously. Um, that might be uh, happening as well. Um, so, so I think people are taking all of that into account. Secondly, there is literature to show where super spreading events can occur. So they have occurred in, in gyms. We have examples in uh, a spinning uh, studio. There have been uh, certain settings um, in, in, in pubs, but perhaps people were singing and were not wearing masks. Um, but globally, the literature has shown that super spreading events occur in those, those, those environments. So, and, um, but, but I think it needs re-evaluation on an ongoing basis. These are difficult decisions. Uh, to balance out at the, at the population level. The other thing, though, is that um, because people are being asked to do these measures for the good of the community, there should be support. So I do know that there's some financial support for businesses. That's not my area of work. But because they have been asked to observe these public health measures, um, there should be some support in order for them to do so. They're playing their part. A lot of Canadian seniors died from COVID-19, and many more could. Why do you think the situation has been so much worse in Canadian long-term care homes than it has been in similar countries who, who have not lost as many of their elderly? Yes, yeah, so I think we have to learn from that initial wave, and that one of the most important aspects of the second resurgence is protecting the most vulnerable, which includes seniors and those in long-term care. Um, in my annual report that I just put out, um, I pointed to some systemic uh, gaps. Some of it pertains to how we value seniors and how we as a society look after them, which includes the conditions in long-term care. So some of, I think, our challenges were maybe crowded conditions in long-term care uh, where the environment is um, conducive to transmission of the virus. But the other thing that I tried to point out in my report is the human resource. The human resource, we're dependent on often racialized, marginalized, poorly paid, low-wage workers to help and support long-term care facilities. And when they're impacted and they couldn't go to work, the whole system began to 
feel the massive stress. And we had to send in the military to support that. And so that was how fragile that system was. And this pandemic really shone a light on some extremely systemic issues. When you look back over the course of the pandemic, this is a new virus. You're just starting to hear about it in December and January, figure out what it means. You're watching it spread through Asian countries, through Europe, through the United States and into Canada. Do you look back and wish there was one thing you'd done differently? I think one of the questions often posed is, should we have closed the borders earlier? Um, I'm sure that will be examined. Uh, Do you think we should have? Time. I mean, New Zealand very... did, Taiwan did, they had lower rates. At the time, Canada had about a hundred, just about a hundred cases uh, domestically, and um, the public health um, you know, discussion at the international level at the time was we need to sort of minimize these sort of uh, uh, border restrictions commensurate with uh, what the risks might be. So that that will be examined because what will we do with the next? Um, emerging pathogen. So I think, um, you know, that's one area is what is the trigger for that kind of uh, very sort of extremely broad and impactful measure. I think looking back, we will see that it's difficult to prevent introduction of an invisible virus. Um, and if you're thinking it's in one country, it's probably in, in, in many. So that, that's a different way of looking at it. Decisive action and fast action is important. We know that. Uh, you know, maybe better risk communication, making sure people know that while transmission really wasn't happening very much in Canada at the time, it could happen. That could occur. But it was a massive decision. We're talking about a country, this is not the same as maybe an island country with one port of entry. This is a country of many ports of entry with a land border that is the biggest undefended, as it were, border in the world with the greatest amount of economic activity. Now we have one of the strictest uh, border measures in the world to ensure that we uh, um, keep Canada safe. Do you think we'll see a third wave? Well, epidemiologists have sort of debated as to what we call these ups and downs. And in Canada, we have many different patterns. So the national curve is a composite of all sorts of things. So you look at each jurisdiction there, their bumps are kind of different. So it's whatever you call it. Could we get another resurgence after this? Absolutely. It depends on what we do. So it's up to us and our collective actions. Uh, but, uh, you know, given that the population immunity, we're measuring that and we will keep measuring it, is very low. So at the last measurement, we're only a, you know, a few percentage points in terms of our, the immunity in our population. That leaves over 90% of the population or 95% of the population still vulnerable. So that uh, tells us that um, resurgences can happen um, if we let our guard down. Dr. Tam, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. Our interview with Canada's Minister of Natural Resources is next.
It's Mercedes on behalf of our entire team here at the West Block. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We'll get to the next segment in just a few moments, but if you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review, give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends. As promised, I'm here, virtually of course, with Seamus O'Regan, Canada's Natural Resources Minister. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mercedes. Good to be back. Now, I know that uh, we're going to get to oil and gas in Alberta in just a moment, but you are our, our ranking cabinet minister on the show today. So I have to ask you about the United States election. Of course, we, we don't know where it's going to go yet, but it is the story everybody is watching. What is the government doing in terms of bracing for potential fallout for Canada, uh, whether it's a continued Trump presidency or a, a new one with Joe Biden? Well, I mean, I think you know, we had a very good conversation um, only recently, just in the past few days, uh, myself and uh, the Prime Minister and uh, Premier Kenny. And, you know, obviously, I think there is a clear appreciation, obviously, amongst ourselves that the, uh, the energy corridors of this continent do run north-south. I've had a really good relationship with Dan Briette, Secretary of, uh, of, of Energy in, in the U.S., and, uh, you know, we, we've been calling each other quite frequently ever since the lockdown, ever since the pandemic uh, hit our shores. And uh, the same with Minister Savage, the energy minister of Alberta. Um, you know, we know that that, that conversation, uh, regardless of who's there uh, after the election day in the United States, will continue because it has to. Um, our, you know, our, our energy sector is too intertwined. Secretary Briette had a clear appreciation of that. And, uh, you know, with all the tumultuous, the, the tumult, I guess, of the energy market, both in Canada and in the United States, um, since the lockdown and, and the twin crises of both the price war that was started by Saudi Arabia and Russia, and of course, demand destruction, as we've seen it because of, of the lockdown, because of the pandemic. Through that, there, we have managed some stability. I mean, prices are nowhere near where we want them to be, and the market is changing, but at least we know that we can rely on the relationship with the United States, and we expect we will be able to after the election. Well, and relying on the United States has always been something we've taken for granted, although I think a lot of that's been shaken in recent years. It could continue to be shaken if there's a Trump presidency. But in the energy file in particular, Biden could really throw a wrench in things, if you're looking at this from an oil and gas perspective. He has said if he is elected, Keystone XL is dead. So what is the government's plan if there is a Biden presidency and that's the end of Keystone? We're unwavering in our support for Keystone, always have been. Um, you know, we continue to get pipelines built. I think there's some 5,600 people who are working on TMX right now. There is a very, very strong argument for the Keystone project that continues regardless of, uh, of who the president of the United States is, and we will continue to make that argument strongly. Uh, I was speaking with Russ Geerling, the uh, CEO of uh, TC Energy, only recently in the past few days as well. And, uh, you know, the project, they have, they continue to tweak and improve the project so that it's competitive and that it takes into account present realities. Uh, TC Energy and, and, you know, to be honest, the Canadian, any, any player right now in the Canadian oil sands, as well as out my way here in the offshore, understands that the market has changed enormously since the time of the lockdown. I mean, there were certain trends, Mercedes, that we knew were happening in terms of switching to renewals, but particularly investors going towards jurisdictions that take combating climate change seriously in their view. And that has only accelerated since the lockdown. So, you know, you follow the money. 
um, you know, you follow the market and, and the market is moving that way. TC Energy is moving that way. Keystone is moving that way. Um, and we believe we'll have strong arguments to make uh, to whomever uh, wins uh, the American election. And just to follow up on something you said there, Minister, when you said that the investment has been going to jurisdictions that are taking climate change seriously, do you think Alberta has not? No, absolutely has been. Absolutely has been. In fact, I, I qualified it by saying in their view, um, because uh, we have to make sure that we tell the full Canadian story to the world. You know, the fact of the matter is we are one of the leaders in the world at clean tech. Eighty percent of our clean tech in this, in this country is funded by oil and gas. And we're not getting the net zero without Saskatchewan. We're not getting the net zero without Newfoundland and Labrador. We aren't getting the net zero without oil and gas. We are the fourth biggest producers of oil and gas in the world. We got to get it right. Our economy relies upon that. So then what is the plan? Because I hear you saying, you know, you'll, you'll make the argument uh, to the president, but he, if it's President Biden, uh, he has said he's not open to it. If he says no, what is your government's plan? Because the president will have ultimate authority on what happens in the United States. How do you support the oil and gas industry if Keystone doesn't go ahead? Well, you know, I, I don't want to deal with hypotheses because um, we're confident in the project. I'm confident of the improvements that TC Energy has made um, in ensuring that renewables are used to actually power the pipeline at, at the different pumping stations that exist along its route, um, in, in, the, uh, in the overtures that they're in increasingly making to First Nations and Métis communities. Um, you know, that we're certainly going to do our part on our side of the border. Um, and then, of course, you know, as you rightly point out, then there's the American side of the border. And, you know, the United States is as complicated a place as as uh, as we are you know for that matter i mean you have state governments you have county governments you have tribes in the case of the united states and of course first nations and metis communities uh on our side um you know that, that and and then you have the legal systems on both sides as well the one thing that we have to maintain is our consistency we are unwavering in our support for keystone okay minister overigan we'll see if that is enough thank you so much for joining us thanks mercedes well, there you have it. That's our podcast for this week. And by the time you're joining us again next week, we'll know who the next American president is. At least hopefully we will, depending on how those results shake out. So be sure not to miss our show as we unpack what it will all mean for us here north of the border in Canada.